So we're continuing our look at what the gospel is not, and I've got a great story I want to talk about before we dive in tonight. And this is hot off the press. This just happened today, actually. So um, as many of you know, I serve as the president of Cornerstone Bible Institute in Hot Springs, South Dakota. And uh, today, during chapel, a basically mentally ill individual burst into chapel and uh, interrupted chapel and uh, started claiming I'm a heretic because I teach that you don't have to do good works to be saved. And fortunately, our vice president and another faculty member stood up and tried to calm him down and get him removed. He, at first, he wasn't going to leave. They were just about to call the police, but he finally agreed to leave. But he's the same individual who last week emailed me and all of the board chairman of the school with this long diatribe, once again, claiming I'm a heretic because I suggest you don't have to do good works to be saved. And this guy is heavily influenced from a Calvinist background. In fact, he either currently goes to or certainly did go to there in uh, the town where the school is, a, a hyper-Calvinist church. And he is the classic example of the end result of Calvinist teaching. The end result of Calvinist teaching is that if you're not doing good works, you're not saved. You've got to have obedience and a sinless lifestyle in order to prove that you're really saved. You've got to turn from your sins. I won't take the time to bore you with all of his points, but he had 10 points that, uh, that I was teaching which were heretical. The very first one was, I teach that you don't have to do good works to go to heaven. Well, guilty as charged. Um, but it's really a sad day when uh, Calvinism has become so prevalent that they're, and this guy's in his 20s, that these millennial types that are so entrenched in Calvinism actually go so far as to travel to a school where they know that the school is teaching the pure dispensational grace-based view of salvation and cause a scene, wreak havoc and go in and, and, uh, and, and disrupt things and act very unprofessionally. Uh, the consensus among the, uh, the faculty there uh, was that actually he, he did more harm than good because, number one, uh, he, of course, clearly delineated the lines of disagreement. I don't have any disagreement with what he claims I say at all. He's characterized me correctly. I believe salvation is by grace through faith alone. You do not have to do good works to be saved. That's what makes it free. If you have to do good works to be saved, then it's not free. And that seems clear enough from Scripture. Of course, when you twist the Scriptures the way Calvinists do, uh, then uh, uh, you can make them say whatever you want. So, But more than that, the reason we believe... Uh, uh, you know, this guy really did us a favor, is that it just shows the type of individual that is out representing this Calvinist view. And I've run into them, I've dealt with this for 32 years now. I've been, I was trolled one time for about three years, two or three years, uh, when I was uh, president of a group called Free Grace Alliance, and we would, I would travel and do regional conferences at different churches, and this guy trolled me and he would he would he was constantly criticizing me online in different threaded discussion groups and uh, websites and just again calling me a heretic because of my views but then he would also call ahead to these conferences where I was going to be and claim that I was a heretic to the pastors well they didn't know this guy from from Adam and they didn't have the time or had never really familiarized himself with the issue so it created a problem so the fact of the matter is when you take a stand for the gospel which Cornerstone Bible Institute has done. And by the way, if you're interested, uh, if you want to go to a school that is, and I'm saying this primarily for those that are maybe live streaming or watching the video down the road, um, that is clear on the gospel, committed to grace unapologetically, committed to a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, unapologetic in its passion for the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, Cornerstone Bible Institute's the school for you. That's who we are. And, and by the way, it's cornerstonebibleinstitute.com. If you go to .org, that's a completely different school. I know nothing about it, but at first glance, it seems kind of charismatic. But we're cornerstonebibleinstitute.com. And, uh, and so if that's, if that's what you believe in, that's the school for you. If you believe salvation is by works or partly by works or you've got to do works to prove it, or somehow you've got to turn from your sin or make a pledge of obedience or some other type of commitment like we've been talking about in this Wednesday night study, uh, then that's not the school for you. But you can find, find plenty that are out there because the heretical false doctrine of works-based or commitment-based teaching 
perpetuates because it's something the devil loves. He, the devil hates it when anybody takes a stand for the gospel. So I've been used to it. We, we deal with this regularly. Um, you know, anytime you take a stand for the gospel, and CBI has done that in recent months. We've, we've kind of had to deal with some issues on campus with those that are promoting Calvinistic teaching. Uh, and so by doing so, the devil got the devil's attention, and he's causing a ruckus. So uh, we, you know, we're not happy about it. It certainly saddens me, but it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm sure the same thing, you know, is true of churches, and it's certainly been true of Not By Works Ministries through the years. So um, I just thought I would kind of mention that as a perfect illustration of those that are out there preaching something that the gospel is not. The gospel is not a commitment, as we've uh, said last week. It's not a contract, as we said last week. And so I've referenced the, this particular article that I'm about to uh, mention uh, last two or three times we've met. And I finally remember to print copies and bring it to you. But uh, it's over 20 years old now, but it was published in a journal. And it's called, the, my title of it was called The Devastating Consequences of Preaching a Commitment-Based Gospel. And so... Um, I'll pass those out. If you're watching this online and you'd like a copy, just email me through the Not By Works website. I'll make sure I send you a copy. But I encourage you to read that, not during this Bible study necessarily, but take it home and read it, and you'll begin to see a real, it's based on a true story, real-life example of the implications of those who suggest that in order to be saved, we've got to make some kind of uh, commitment. So we've been talking in this uh midweek Bible study about 10 false understandings of the gospel. We've gotten through two of them, really one and a half, and we'll finish up the second one tonight. But we said the gospel is not a commitment, and it's not about what we do for Christ. It's about what he has done for us. We don't have to commit any part of our lives or ourselves or our heart or our initiative to him in order to have eternal life. We simply receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. As we said, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And if my salvation was based upon a commitment, then I would have something to boast about. My commitment could be compared to your commitment. I could say, I'm more committed than you. And if I'm more committed than you, then I must be more saved than you. And if you're not as committed as me, maybe you're not saved altogether. But the Bible certainly never uses the word commitment in the context of eternal life. Nor is it accurate theologically to say that we get saved by committing something to the Lord. Salvation is not a commitment. The gospel is not a commitment. That wouldn't be good news, by the way. It would be bad news. If our eternal destination is based upon our commitment, that's bad news. Because how will I ever know if I'm committed enough? I cannot have assurance. Um, and, of course, worse than that, since the Bible plainly states that it's not based on a commitment, it's based on grace, then those who think they're going to heaven because they've made some kind of resolute commitment are actually hell-bound. And that's pretty sad. That's pretty sad. And that's one of the implications of teaching a false gospel, is that if that's all people ever hear, they can't be saved. Because as we've talked about, it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. The gospel is made up of words and content. It has a very precise meaning in Scripture. So if you're placing your faith in something other than the biblical gospel, you're not saved. And that's a tragedy. Uh, but Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And one way that he does that is by taking otherwise so-called conservative, Christian, evangelical, popular, widely widely known pastors and Bible teachers who, and letting using them to promote this false gospel. And people say, well, I'm a Christian because I go to this church, or I'm a Christian because I did what this guy said to do. But they're not. They're not a Christian unless they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for their sins. And so then, in a similar vein, we talked about how the gospel is not a contract. The gospel is not a contract. And we pointed out how many popular evangelical pastors and teachers uh, describe the gospel in a manner that very much implies it is a bilateral contract where you sit down one-on-one -on -one with the Lord you tell him what you'll do, and if you do enough, he'll says, okay, you've got a deal. And we used as an illustration of this a leading Calvinist uh, scholar, John MacArthur, who essentially could not have described his view of the contract any clearer. I mean, there's just no way to parse this that makes it sound right. 
Salvation for sinners cost God his own life. It cost God's son, uh, his own son. It cost God's son his life, and it'll cost you the same thing. That's a bilateral contract. If you've got two parties both bringing the same amount to the table, that's a bilateral contract. Uh, he goes on, salvation comes from a life lived in obedience and service to Christ, as revealed in the Scripture. It's the fruit of actions, not intentions. Well, salvation is not the fruit of actions. Salvation is the fruit of faith. More than 160 times, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. When faith meets the right object, the result is eternal salvation every time. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith. So we, we talked about uh, lots of uh, examples of that, but then we left off with, we were going to look at some biblical teaching about this notion uh, of a contract. Uh, here's a famous example. The rich young ruler uh, comes to Christ and says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He had a contractual understanding of the gospel, of, of heaven, of the kingdom. Um, what can I do for you? What's my part in the deal? What do I have to bring to the table? And, uh, of course, Jesus' response in classic form was to walk the man through his understanding of the law. And so Jesus says, well, you've got to keep the commandments. And the guy says, well, I've done all that since my youth. Remember that? And Jesus says, oh, really? It's the same... same uh, rhetorical technique that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he told the Pharisees and those listening on the hillside that day that you've got to be perfect if you want to get into the kingdom. So here he's talking to a man who thinks he is perfect. He thinks he's dotted all of his I's and crossed all of his T's. And so Jesus says, well, what about the laws about benevolence and helping the poor? Why don't you sell some of your goods and, and go give to the poor? And the man walked away sad indicating he knew he had fallen short in that area. So uh, that's one example. Uh, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, they too thought the Pharisees and scribes, which were really the target of his teaching, and we know this because at the end in Matthew 7, it talks about how they were troubled by his teaching, but they too thought it was a bilateral contract, a quid pro quo. Lord, Lord, we've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. And of course, what did he say? Well, great, you've kept your part of the deal. Come right on in. No, that's not what he said at all. He said, I never knew you because it's not a contract. It's not a contract. As Jesus said, you've got to be perfect. And the only way to be perfect is to receive Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift. It's a free gift. You know, uh, this uh, guy that was attacking me and that uh, caused a scene on campus uh, today uh, it was arguing against the free grace concept. Now, free grace is a biblical term, and it's also a term that for many years kind of characterized those who understood salvation from a traditional dispensational grace-based perspective. Unfortunately, some bad teaching has spun off from that, and, and so depending on who you're talking to, free grace could mean something that we don't agree with, uh, which is one of the problems with labels. But biblically, it's a completely biblical term, free grace. We are justified freely by His grace. Romans 3.24, that's a direct quote. So grace by definition is free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. <laughs> so uh, again, Romans or uh, Revelation 22 also says, Whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely. So the only way to be perfect is to receive the free gift. You cannot be perfect enough on your own efforts. It's not 99% righteous that matters. It's not being more righteous than the next guy. It's not some kind of a deal where as long as you cross your I's, or cross your T's and dot your I's, then God says, good job, I'll let you in. It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. James put it this way, James, the Lord's brother, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point is guilty of all. And, you know, we know theologically from God's Word, that everyone is born a sinner. So we're already corrupt in our very nature. Ephesians 2.1 says we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. But anecdotally, there's not a person alive that would say, I've never done anything wrong. I mean, I just can't imagine such a person. I mean, I'm sure there are people somewhere that have that level of seared conscience and pride, but I've never talked to them. 
I mean, who you go up and say, have you ever done anything wrong? Everyone's going to say, well, sure. Whether it's cheating on a seventh grade test or stealing a piece of bubble gum from the grocery store or you know, lying to your parents, right? Uh, everybody's done something wrong. And James says, if you have, you might as well have broken every one of the Ten Commandments, right? So it's a unilateral gift. That's what John 3, 16 uh, tells you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and all we have to do is believe in Him. And if we do, we don't perish and we have everlasting life. You know, a gift, by definition, comes with no strings attached. And that's the part that makes people like the Calvinists and like this young man who's got some issues all upset. But I, I, I don't apologize for it at all. I want to shout it from the mountaintops and the rooftops as clearly as possible. Salvation has no strings attached, period. If it did, it would not be a gift. It would be a quid pro quo. If I were to offer you a gift, and right before you take it, I say, now, wait a minute, before you take it, I just want to make sure you understand, here's what you got to do. That's not a gift. That's a contract. That's an agreement, right? A gift is, here you go, it's yours. I hope you'll be a good steward of it. And the Spirit of God who indwells you the moment you believe the gospel is going to convict and reprove and encourage and all of that. And hopefully over time you'll grow more like Christ and become more mature and sanctified. But there's no front-end you know, agreement or quid pro quo with strings attached. And yet Calvinism teaches there is. That it's, it's a matter of turning from your sin, forsaking all unrighteousness, promising to be good, pledging to follow Him. Uh, turning away from all bad things, having a willingness to obey, all of these upfront uh, commitments and, and, and promises. Uh, but there are only really two responses to a gift. And it's universal, doesn't matter what the gift is. You either receive it or you reject it. That's only options. Anything else added to the equation eliminates the notion of a gift and turns it into a contract, a quid pro quo. But a gift, by definition, is free. And John tells us, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. That last phrase there grammatically is in apposition to the first one, indicating that receive and believe are essentially the same thing. The manner of receiving him is by believing in his name. So the gospel is not a bilateral contract. It is a unilateral gift. All right, any Questions about that before we move on to the third thing the gospel is not, or any comments or anybody? I got one question. Yeah, sure. I can't find the reference. What? That's a scripture verse that says faith without works is dead. Yeah, James two fourteen. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find it. Yeah. Would you would you talk on that just? A I will. Yeah, and so. Um, for some of our long timers, I know we we spent several weeks on James two back oh September October November somewhere around there. So the videos are on the Not by Works website for those that might be interested in that. But uh, the uh, issue with James two, if you want to turn there, and that's a great question, um, is James is. Uh, addressing a group of believers. He calls them repeatedly throughout the five chapters, brethren, brothers, little children, those types of things. Um, and he's, he's talking about the, the natural consequences of sin in the life of a believer. And he spends the entire chapter one talking about how we should avoid temptation, we should not succumb to temptation, he says, in, say, for example, in James 1.15, when sin uh, is full grown, it brings forth death. In other words, sin is an equal opportunity killer. It will kill you. It doesn't care if you're a believer. A believer who wallows around in sin is just as likely to end up physically suffering consequences as an unbeliever. Do not be deceived, my brethren. He's talking to believers, verse 16. Um, and then, uh, so he says, so then, my beloved brethren, again, clearly believers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to become wrath. Lay aside all filthiness and wickedness. Um, but then he gets to chapter 2, and first thing he does is rebuke them for their hypocrisy and uh, showing partiality within the assembly. 
Uh, and then he gets to verse 14 and he says, What profit will it be, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And by the way, in Greek, the required answer to that question, the way it's structured and gra grammatically, is no. So James absolutely, unequivocally says you cannot be saved by faith. Now, do you have a problem with that? No. <laughs> and so did Luther. And that's why Luther's Bible did not have the book of James. Martin Luther's Bible had 65 books. Because the Bible is so crystal clear that salvation is precisely by faith, not by works. And he thought James was contradicting that, so he ripped it out. But he completely missed the point. The word save, as we talked about last week, is the word sozo. It's used 108 times in the New Testament, and 67% of the time, two-thirds of it, it has nothing to do with eternal life. And that's the case here. James uses the word sozo five times in his epistle. All five times it has nothing to do with heaven or hell. James never mentions heaven and hell. He never mentions eternal life. He never mentions the penalty of sin. He's just saying that faith, if it doesn't have works, is not going to deliver you, that's what the word save means, from the death-dealing consequences of sin and the natural consequences that come with living a sinful life. That's what he's saying. He's not talking about heaven or hell. So, in fact, we know this also because he just said in verse 12 of chapter 2 that you should speak and act in a way that's going to be judged, and he doesn't use the word bima, but the only judgment for believers ever in Scripture ever mentioned is the bima judgment where we are rewarded for our acts of faithfulness. So that must be what he's talking to by comparing Scripture with Scripture because Jesus made it clear once you believe the gospel, you never come into judgment. So when he's talking about judge here, he doesn't mean judge to get into heaven, and he certainly doesn't mention heaven or hell here, but he's talking about the Bema judgment. So he's saying, live and act in such a way, I mean, speak and act in such a way that you'll please the Father and be rewarded accordingly. And then you get down to verse 14, and he says, what is it? Profit. That word profit is the word a fellow in Greek, which means to heap up or accumulate. In other words, what are you going to accumulate at the Bema judgment if you're not acting the same way that your faith you know, dictates? Our actions should always be consistent with our faith. Remember what we talked about last week? I'll throw it up on the screen here. That our, uh, our practice in life should always reflect our position in Christ. James is essentially saying the same thing. Now, he's not getting into positional truth the way Paul later does. James, this is the first book written in the New Testament, written 44 to 47 A.D. So the church is only 10 years old. This is before you know, any of Paul's writings before, you know, Paul had even started his missionary journeys. So he's not using the same terminology, but he's saying the same basic thing, that your actions should reflect who you are in Christ. Because what profit is there going to be to have faith, but you don't have the works that go with it? And then he goes on, and we don't have time to necessarily exposit the entire uh, passage, but he goes on to say in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, Calvinists and most people, frankly, most commentaries, read that and say, faith, if it doesn't have works, is non-existent. It wasn't real. And that's the, the, the way the whole spurious faith idea came up. The Bible never uses the phrase spurious faith. There's no such teaching in Scripture. But they're saying that this is an example of a person who has faith, but because they didn't produce work, their faith wasn't real. But what does he say? Does he say faith, if it does not have works, is not real? No, he says it's dead. Now flip over to Romans 7, 8. What, is, what does the word dead mean? Uh, in Romans chapter 7, Paul uses the same word when he says in verse 8, apart from the law, sin was dead. What was that addressed? Romans 7, verse 8. Apart from the law, sin was dead. Now let me ask you a question. When did the law come into existence? On Mount Sinai, roughly 1440s B.C. When did sin enter the world? Long time before that. So clearly, when Paul says, apart from the law, sin is dead, he doesn't mean non-existent. Dead never means non-existent. If you see a dead body lying in a casket, are you going to say, well, that person never existed? Of course not. It would be ridiculous. 
And so this is just another example of bad teaching and bringing your theology to the text. Because Calvinism teaches that you've got to do good works or your faith wasn't real. And the reason they teach that, remember, is because they define faith as not necessarily just believing the good news, but it has to have this pledge, this promise, what they call fiducia. That's what that's their term for it. You see it all through their writings. I could uh, go into my digital library right now and just search fiducia. And, you know, uh, uh, MacArthur, uh, Boyce, Piper, Sproul, you, you name it, uh, Burkhoff, all of them. That's pervasive in their writings because that's the component of the bilateral contract. And if that's not there, then you're not really saved. Is so they call the it... Where fiduciary comes from? It is, yeah. Yep, it's this responsibility, right? Fiducia. So it's a Latin word. So they believe faith has to have three components, noticia, ascensus, and fiducia. Noticia is just understanding the, con the, the words, which, of course, we believe you have to understand the gospel to believe it. That goes without saying. Uh, ascensus, believing it and, or assenting to its truthfulness. And then fiducia, pledging or promising to obey it. And so it's a tripartite meaning of faith. Now, the Bible never describes faith in those terms at all. Uh, the word faith in Scripture is the word pistis. It just means confidence or assurance. So it's when your confidence meets the gospel that you're saved. But anyway, ever since the Reformation, they've redefined the meaning of the word faith, which is why the debate gets so confusing, because Calvinists would say, oh, sola fide, faith alone. But they mean something completely different by faith than we do in what the Bible does. So back to James 2, James is saying faith, if it doesn't have works, is useless it's ineffective just like paul was saying once the law came it it highlighted sin it sort of invigorated sin it made sin more noticeable you know it didn't create sin i mean if sin was already in existence in the same way faith alone without works is is ineffective and there's always been a dynamic relationship between faith and works you know Trust and obey. That's the whole motto of the Christian life. The more we trust the Lord, the more we'll obey Him. Uh, whatever's not of faith is sin. So works and faith should have a natural connection. When they do, you'll be rewarded. You'll have all kinds of practical benefits. Um, you know, it's like James said in this passage. I mean, what's the practical value of saying to a poor and destitute person, God bless you, but not giving them any food or clothing? No value at all. In the same way for a believer, remember who he's talking to as believers, to say, you know, to, to have faith that gets you to heaven, but then not live out a godly life is not going to have any practical value. In fact, there are terrible consequences for that, which could include swift physical death. We know that biblically. In 1 Corinthians 11, people, believers were dying because of their sin. Uh, see, 1 John says uh, there's sin that leads to death. Proverbs talks about it all, all the time, that if you live an ungodly, foolish lifestyle, you're likely to hasten your death. I mean, sin kills. James has already said that in chapter 1. So, faith without works is dead. Great question. It's not saying that we've got to do good works to prove that we're saved. It's just saying that we should do good works in order to avoid the practical consequences uh, of that. Thank you. So, great question, um, and I'm sure that helped some of those listening on uh, line as well who may not have been here for that series but if you're interested you could go back search uh, the not by works website uh, and you'll see it uh, you know uh, on there about james chapter 2 what is dead faith i think i call it any other questions or comments before we move to number three do you need water i do i forgot to grab it so thank you very much yes. um I'm pretty sure you're saved because that's such a good work to do for me. <laughs> um, number three, the gospel is not giving something to the Lord. Okay, now this is uh, also very common. It's also kind of an unfortunate terminology that people use. Um, it's, it's not something that is necessarily directly tied to Calvinism, nor are you know all of these Ten things. It's just Calvinism is such a popular thing right now that it often comes up. But uh, nevertheless, they would certainly understand the conversion experience just as they understand it as a commitment or a contract, as as us giving something to the Lord. And yet, you'll hear people say all the time, you know, when you say, "Hey, tell me about how you got saved," they might say something. Well, I gave my life to the Lord when I was ten years old. 
That's great, but when did you get saved? Because <laughs> you don't get saved by giving your life to the Lord. Uh, the Bible never uses that kind of language, uh, and we've got to be biblicists above all else. Thank you so much. Um, and so the Bible actually says just the opposite. When it comes to the gospel, there's one giver and one receiver. Now, who's the giver? Say it real loud so the tape will pick it up. God, of course, right? And who's the receiver? The, the person wanting to be saved by faith, right? And we just talked about that a second ago. John 1.12, to as many as received him. doesn't say to as many as give something to him. We receive Christ, right? And so uh, one giver, one receiver. The gospel is one directional. Like I said, it's a unilateral gift. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who's with the Lord now, uh, he told me one time in a, a private conversation that we've turned the gospel 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And I'm sure he said this many times in his lectures and possibly in his books. But he was spot on. Whenever we say, oh, I'm, you know, I got to say by giving my life to the Lord or tell someone if you want to be saved, you got to give your life to the Lord or give your heart to the Lord or give your all to the Lord, those types of things. We're turning the gospel 180 degrees in the opposite direction, right? Again, all of the terminology of Scripture is one directional with God being the giver. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever gives something to Him in exchange, no, <laughs> that whoever believes in Him, which is the means by which we receive. Again, we talked about this a second ago, as many as received Him. So I think the reason... So many people have a hard time getting saved, and I talk about this in top 10 reasons uh, some people go to hell, is that their hands are full. They come to the proverbial altar, so to speak. They come to that moment with the Lord when they're, they're understanding they're a sinner. They know they need a Savior. They know their sin is an offense to a holy God. They know that it has a steep penalty upon it and that it will result in eternity in hell. They've come under conviction. They know they need to do something. And yet, instinctively, they come loaded up with all this stuff they want to give the Lord. And because their hands are full, they have no way to receive, uh, I'm speaking metaphorically, the gift, which is free. Again, if it's not free, uh, it's not a gift. Um, you know, I've quoted this often, but Augustus Toplady in that famous uh, hymn, Rock of Ages, got it right. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the gospel. The gospel is not giving something to the Lord. Any thoughts on that? I, I Just something crossed my mind. I think it's known as a foxhole conversion. Or, you know, when you know people, let's say, are in the foxhole and they're in... Oh, yeah. And it's like... You know, if there is a God, just, you know, I'll believe you and I'll never do this again. Sure. So it's almost the same kind of thing. Yeah, you see that a lot. And, um, you know, you'll see that there's this mind. I'm actually going to talk about this a little bit Sunday. Uh, I've been working on my message this week from Hebrews 12, 3 to 17. And, um, and, and there's this natural... Um, thought that somehow God is, a, is first and foremost a retributive God, a quid pro quo God. And even those who are saved tend to lapse back into that thinking in their Christian life so that every time something bad happens, you know, they think, oh, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God punishing me? You know, like every negative experience is somehow retributive. But God is not retributive. God is a God of grace, first and foremost. And so, back to your comment about you know, foxhole conversions, uh, you, know, you see it not just with unbelievers coming to faith, but you see it with believers, and you see it with people that aren't even contemplating eternity. But you know, you'll see baseball players get up to the plate, and they'll go, you know, like they think, if, I, if they're somehow appeasing God, He's going to let them hit a home run. Right? See that all the time. Um, you know, it reminds me of the Yogi Berra story. Yogi was behind the plate, and a batter stepped up to the plate, 
and there was, you know, dust and dirt on the plate a little bit, and with his bat, he reached down and kind of made the sign of the cross, a Catholic sign on the, on the home plate. And Yogi Berra reached down and wiped it all off and looked up at the guy and said, let's leave God out of this one. <laughs> you know, it's like, just, you know, get a hit. If you need to get a hit, just do, do, do what you have to do. But it's, God's not going to honor you because you said, you know, some chant or some methodical thing. Yeah. Well, they say there's uh, what, no um, unbelievers on an airplane that's about to crash. Yeah. They're all screaming God. That's right. But here's the thing. Nobody gets saved by crying out to God. In fact, many people in the moment of facing a tragic death cry out, Oh my God! Does that mean they're in heaven because they cried, Oh my God? No, you go to heaven by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins. And that's another passage that uh, is often misunderstood. And I think we kind of walked through that at one point in the past six months or so as well. But um, I know we're picking up new people all the time. But Romans chapter 10, uh, where Paul quotes from Joel 2.32, and he says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The context there has nothing to do with heaven or hell. It has to do with the second coming of Christ and the nation of Israel crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the context. Um, again, nowhere does the Bible teach, and not here, that simply calling on the name of the Lord gets you into heaven. It's faith. Faith, faith, faith. Now, when we're expressing faith, of course, we are addressing the Lord, either in our mind or what, your, your faith has to have an object. So you're saying, Lord, I trust in you and what you've done for me at Calvary to give me the gift of eternal life, to forgive my sin. So, but, but just calling out the name of the Lord does not save people. And anytime you see the New Testament quote an Old Testament passage, you should go back and look at the Old Testament passage because you can't reassign the meaning. And yet you see all the time people using this verse as an evangelistic verse. It's not. Uh, in Joel 2, again, it's about the second coming of Christ. And remember, uh, the Old Testament prophets had said that um, Israel's going to have to be regathered into the land in belief. And uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 23 that the Jewish nation would not see him again until they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember the at the first coming of Christ, there was a remnant of believers who cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of Psalm 118, that Messianic Psalm. But within a few days, those cries turned to crucify him, crucify him. Jesus is saying, the next time I come, you have to cry out in belief. You have to call on the name of the Lord. In Romans 10, Paul is talking about national Israel and how they will get their kingdom someday. That's very clear if you read through the whole context and you get into chapter 11 and he says, you know, it's all, there were no chapter divisions, remember, in the original text. Those didn't come along until 1,500 years after Romans was written, the 1551 to be exact. And so, you know, when you read chapters 10 and 11, they were all part of the same context. And at the end of chapter 11, he talks about how the deliverer will come out of Zion and then all the nation of Israel will be delivered into her kingdom. Well, when's that going to happen? It's going to happen when the nation cries, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When's that going to happen? Not until individual Jews have first believed the gospel. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. How can they call on him in whom they've not believed? So they believe in him unto individual justification. They call out to him unto national deliverance. So here's another example where one of those two-thirds of the times when saved does not mean heaven or hell. It means deliverance into the kingdom in fulfillment of Joel 2.32. So calling on the name of the Lord doesn't save anybody. And, uh, you know, you're right, uh, Anne, there are a lot of people who in a moment of crisis, you know, don't necessarily place their faith in the Lord but in horror, they just cry out the Lord's name in vain. But that doesn't mean they're saved. Um, I do think there are people, uh, and the thief on the cross is an example, who in a moment like that can and do understand the gospel. We've all heard stories. As a pastor, I've led people to the Lord in a hospital bed you know, shortly before they died. So I think coming face to face with death 
can cause someone to contemplate their eternity, and the Spirit of God can use that to convict them of sin and their need for a Savior. And in that moment, many people come to faith, but they certainly don't go to heaven simply by calling on the name of the Lord. And promising that they will or won't do something. Right, or as you were saying, making some type of promised commitment. You know, the Lord, okay, if you'll just get me out of this predicament, I'll never drink again, or I'll never smoke again, or, you know, whatever. Again, God is not a bilateral quid pro quo God. He's a, he's a gracious God. Um, so... Uh, I want to say one other thing here about this notion of giving something to the Lord. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot, and I, I always want to come back to this paradigm between positional righteousness and practical righteousness, between eternal salvation and sanctification or discipleship. Okay? We've got to keep those two distinct. When it comes to discipleship for believers, but I'm talking about people that are already born again, obviously... All of these things, I'll go ahead and just put the next one up. We've talked about the first three so far. But all of these things are a factor for believers. Believers ought to be committed to the Lord. Believers ought to have recognized that you know, they have a part to play, that it's a cooperative effort between yielding to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's con commitment. Um, they ought to be giving. You ought to wake up every day and say, Lord, what can I offer you today? out of gratitude. And in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an uh, appendix at the back that talks about uh, so many, I forget how many, 20 to 30 motivations for the Christian to do good works. And there are many. And one of those is out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we want to give something back. So we're talking here about what the gospel is not, that is to say, what some people try to pass off as the means by which you can be made right with the Holy God and have eternal life, be saved. And we're suggesting these are not the means of doing that, and the Bible certainly uh, teaches that. So uh, we've got, let's see, we've got about 15, 12, 12 to 15 minutes here, so we'll, we'll dive into this next one. Now, I did talk about this not in the not-too-distant past in a different context, but it's on the list of the top ten things that the gospel is not, so I'm going to repeat it, and that is repenting of your sin. Repenting of your sin. Now, this is a biggie. And uh, this uh, mentally ill individual that stormed into the campus uh, today and has written me letters and written letters to the school board and all of that uh, insists that you've got to turn from your sin if you're going to get to heaven. How dare I suggest you don't have to turn from your sin uh, to be saved. So... Uh, the word repent, as we've talked about, is used fairly scarcely in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, verb is the word metanoeo, and the noun is the word uh, metanoia. The noun is used 22 times total in the entire New Testament. The verb is used 34 times, so we're talking about 56 times total. It's a compound word, meta. Naeo, naeo in Greek is the verb to know or to think. Uh, meta is again, so it means to think again or to change your mind. And so like all words, it's got to be defined uh, in its context. One lexicon defines it this way, to change the way you think. That's what repentance is, metanaeo, to change the way you think. So the question then becomes change what you think about what, <laughs> right? And I pointed out in the previous discussion about repentance that the, new, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this exact word, metanoeo, to describe God. and says, God repented. So clearly, repentance does not intrinsically have something to do with sin. It can, in certain contexts, when the context demands it, mean change your mind about sin. But it's not attached to it. And most people, and Calvinists teach this, say that repentance always means turn from sin. Well, if that's the case, then God had to turn from sin, and God must have been a sinner, because the word is used to describe God. So obviously it can't mean that. It seems simple enough to me. But context always has to determine meaning. So there are, of the 56 occurrences, there are a handful, less than half a dozen, where speaking in general about a change of mind, it's talking about our eternal uh, 
salvation. For example, uh, in Acts 26, but uh, Paul here speaking before Agrippa, he says, "Declare I declare first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent. Now, what did we say repent means? Change your mind. All right. Doesn't say anything about sin there, right? Do you see the word sin even mentioned in the verse? No, what Paul was saying to especially the Jews was you ought to change your mind. This Messiah that you've crucified is actually the one who can save you. And, and what we're going to see is that on, a, again, a small number of cases, repentance is a descriptive term that is used to apply to the conversion experience. In other words, to say that another way, every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, you could say of that person, they have changed their mind. They used to think their works would save them. They used to think Catholicism would save them. They used to think their baptism would save them. They used to think they didn't need a Savior. They used to think they were good enough. Whatever they used to think, they changed their thinking and came to realize that only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins, has the power to forgive sin and give them the gift of eternal life. And they have trusted in Him and Him alone. And that whole process that they went through could be described as a change of mind. They've changed their mind about what they used to think would save them and now believe that only Jesus will save them. But that has nothing to do with turning away from sin. And, and, and certainly this uh, text uh, indicates that. Uh, or in Acts 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, he's saying, uh, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, changing your mind about God. That's part of the equation. You, again, if you used to think that you didn't need a Savior, or you used to think that you were good enough, you've changed your mind. You now realize God is a holy God. You are not holy. Your sin separates you from a holy God. And by faith, you've torn down that wall of separation and become born again. I mean, however you want to describe it, we've got to use biblical concepts to define biblical words. And this, this does not say that Paul was teaching the Greeks they had to turn from their sin and trust in Christ to be saved. And that's the way a lot of uh, doctrinal statements and gospel tracts and false gospels read. They make it sound like step of salvation is a two-step process. Step one, repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Step two, trust in Christ. Gospel tracts will even use a, a, a diagram of a U-turn. You know, the problem with false gospels on this point is that they get everything right up to the point of now what? Now, what do I do? So they, uh, they get it right when they talk about everyone's a sinner, Romans 3.23, right? Uh, Romans 3.10. Uh, they get it right when they talk about our sin separates us from a holy God. The wages of sin is death. They get it right when they talk about you need to do something. You're lost and on the road to hell. But they lead them all. They they lead the horse to water, so to speak. But then, instead of giving it a drink, they give it false information. They say, "Okay, have I got you? I've, I've hooked you. You know, you're you've got a problem and you're hellbound, and you're on the edge of your seat wondering what to do." And then they say, "Okay, well, here's what you have to do. You need to do a U-turn. <laughs> There's works. You got to do good works. You got to change your behavior. So you do this U-turn, and most bad gospel tracks." Not the ones we use, of course, but a lot of bad gospel tracts will show the U-turn. And they say, now that you've done a U-turn, or to use MacArthur's words, now that you've forsaken all unrighteousness, then you simply believe in, in, in God. So it's a two-step process. Step one, repent. Step two, uh, believe. But that's uh, not what the Bible uh, teaches. Now notice this one. This one sometimes people will point out and say, oh, see? But again, observation, what does, the, what does it teach? Paul is, uh, uh, or Jesus is speaking here, and he says that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. doesn't say repent of your sins. He's saying repentance. What does repentance mean? Change of mind. And, and, and only by trusting in Christ can our sins be forgiven. The Bible says that more than 160 times, right? So when he's saying repentance here, He's talking about that characterization of the moment we trust in Christ. And because we've had a change of mind about Christ and placed our faith in Him, our sins are forgiven. So you got 160 plus verses that 
unequivocally uh, uh, make salvation contingent upon faith alone. You've got only 56 verses total that use repentance and only a half a dozen of those that use it in the context of heaven or hell, eternal salvation. And none of those say explicitly that you've got to turn from your sins to be saved. And we said clearly that repentance does not always have to do with sin. If it did, God would have to turn from his sin, right? So uh, one of the rules of hermeneutics is to interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And I don't use repentance verses in sharing the gospel because it's not that common. Um, you know, after the book of Acts, you don't hardly see the word at all. You see it in 2 Peter 3.9, but again, it's just a general change of mind. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance Peter didn't mean God is not willing that any should perish, but that all stop sinning and do a U-turn. <laughs> he meant God is not willing that any should perish, but that all change their mind about who God is and who Christ is and the means of salvation. And yeah, we want everybody to have a change of mind. Every unbeliever should change their mind and recognize that if they die without first trusting in Jesus Christ, they're going into a Christless eternity. And by the way, it's a tormented eternity. Uh, that's clear from Scripture. So we want people to change their mind, but we don't want to mislead them in thinking that they have to turn from their sin in order to be somehow good enough for God to save them. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. Salvation is the bath, right? So the gospel is not repenting of your sin. It's not repenting of your sin. It never says that. Um, and to say that is actually very confusing, and it leads people, uh, you know, to a complete misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Uh, Jesus said plainly in John 8, I said to you that, if, that you will die in your sin, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He didn't say you're going to die in your sins unless you repent of your sins. That would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to clarify that getting into heaven means turning from your sin. But he didn't. Um, repentance of sins uh, is something that you can change your mind about sin as a believer. And by the way, if you think sin is okay, you should change your mind about sin. You should repent of your sin. But that's not something that's going to get you into heaven. Uh, one other point on this, and then I'll take questions. Um, don't confuse the notion of repentance and acknowledgement or you know, uh, you know, recognizing that you're a sinner. Absolutely, it goes without saying, you have to know you're a sinner and admit you're a sinner. That's one of the five core essentials of the gospel that I go to great lengths to prove from Scripture in getting the gospel wrong. Uh, but knowing you're a sinner and promising to turn from that sin are two entirely different things. you got to know you're a sinner before you need a Savior. But you don't have to turn from that sin in order to be saved. If you did, then Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. If all you had to do is turn from your sin to be saved, you don't need a Savior. Uh, but Calvinists emphatically and emotionally say that you must turn from your sin if you're going to get to heaven. And that's just simply wrong. If I could turn from my sin, I wouldn't need a Savior. Right. All right, any thoughts or comments about any of that? Yeah. Here and then back there. How did this this concept or this this doctrine of repentance gained so much popularity within the evangelical church. Uh, I dare say that this is probably the first time I've ever heard someone really define what you're talking about. Yeah. I've always believed and been taught sure. that you repent of your sin. Of course, it's very common, yeah. You know, that you stop doing what you were doing that's yeah. in violation of God's law, let's say. Right. So the question is, how did this repentance of sin become so commonplace in evangelical teaching about the gospel? Um, and you you stated it well that you've always been you've always heard you got to repent of your sin you got to stop doing what's an offense to God. But just think about it logically. First of all, find me a passage that says that. That's what I say to everybody. Find me a passage that says if you stop sinning or promise to stop sinning, you can go to heaven. There isn't one. 
It's by grace through faith, and grace is a free gift. Paul says in Romans 4, if it's not of grace, it's of works. If it's not of works, it's of grace, and never the twain shall meet. I mean, that's kind of a paraphrase, that last part, but that's what he says. So uh, I would say, uh, you know, one of the biggest factors that has helped it spread has been the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm a, I was a raised Southern Baptist, uh, was licensed in the Southern Baptist Church, still have a lot of friends there. Uh, but the Baptist faith and message, which is their credo, and Southern Baptists are not a people of a, of a credo. They are, each Baptist church is autonomous. But the Southern Baptist Convention has had for years the Baptist faith and message. The original one was in the 60s, or the one that I grew up under was. Then they've changed it and modified it. But it always has this two-sided concept of repent and believe. And so because the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, um, it, it, it's very influential globally in missions. Uh, and because that's been what the six Southern Baptist seminaries teach and what pastors teach from the pulpit and, and so forth, it's just kind of been a key mechanism. Um, but it's not right. It's, it's simply not right. The Bible doesn't say repent and believe. Basically, any gospel presentation that uses the word and before believe is false. Because there's only one means of salvation, and it's used 160 plus times. Believe. So if you say, do this and believe, or do this and believe, or do that and believe, you've added to it. Uh, so that's one factor. I think the Reformed teaching coming out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, again, going back to this notion of fiducia, uh, the, the Reformers, to their credit, obviously rejected the explicit works-based concept of Roman Catholicism that had had a stranglehold on the world for 1,500 years. Uh, this idea of paying for indulgences or earning your way into heaven, or even after death, earning your way out of purgatory, this whole works-based concept. They, When they could finally start reading the Bible again for themselves without being burned at the stake by the Catholics, <laughs> they started to say, oh, the Bible doesn't teach that. And so, of course, Martin Luther nailed his theses to the wall and, you know, the whole... Reformation came about, but because they everything happens in a context and they were so heavily influenced by centuries of a works-based mentality, it was hard for them to entirely cut ties. And so the, the reformers sort of let works in through the back door. It wasn't as explicit, it was more implicit. But what they then said is that, you know, you don't have to do good works to become saved, but if you're not doing good works, you're not saved. Well, what's the difference, frankly? Either way, you're making works the determining factor. Arminians just bring it in through the front door. Calvinists sneak it in through the back door. But both of them are paving the road back to Rome and making works the determining factor. And so it wasn't for until, you know, time went on and, and again, the printing press and people could start reading the Bible and we started seeing a... The, the whole onset of Bible conferences and Bible schools and uh, uh, things like the Niagara Bible conferences and the Schofield Reference Bible and things like that where people started realizing, you know what, it's, it's totally by grace through faith. It's, it's not, there's no element of works. And, uh, and the hymns, you know, I, I trace in uh, top ten reasons, I use, refer to several hymns, and it was fascinating to look at the timetable of what was going on in the, theo in the theological milieu with what songwriters and hymn writers were writing. And so Augustus Top Lady, when was that written? Let me see if I can go back to that. Uh, oh, I, didn't put the, I didn't put the date in there. But anyway, you know, people started saying, no, it's totally by grace through faith. So you know, I guess you know, that's a long answer to say I don't know exactly you know, the genesis of it, but um, it's... It's certainly not uh, something that the first century apostles taught. They were, you don't find repentance of sin anywhere in the New Testament as a requirement for eternal life. So, uh. There's some pride and elitism, I think, associated with it too, that, you know, well, that's what I used to believe, but now that I've studied, I know that it's, you know, Calvinistic way. Yeah. Oh yeah, so there's definitely an incipient pride, uh, and and I, I I say that with some degree of uh, you know data to back it up. I mean I I've 
been dealing with this issue for 32 years, and uh, so I and I cite the sources to show it. But there's this sense of, you know, we like to judge. It's okay to judge other people, and this is the Calvinist. What's in their mindset? They may not say it this way, but clearly based on their evidence, they are okay judging other people who claim to be Christians but are living blatantly sinful lives. And they would hastily say, oh, you're not a Christian. Clearly your faith lacked fiducia. It was spurious. You didn't mean business with the Lord, which is what this article is all about. I hope you'll take the time to read Devastating Consequences of a Commitment-Based Gospel because it shows you the vicious cycle that it creates in the life of a believer who's simply wanting to you know, clean up their life and try to live a godly life. And if the best we can do every time someone is sinning is go say, well, you must not really be saved. <laughs> that's not helpful. And that's tragic. Um, there are people who aren't saved and they're living a sinful life and they think they're saved. Well, those people, we do want to share the gospel with them. But to focus our attention on their behavior and conclude dogmatically that they're not saved I mean, MacArthur tells the story in one of his books of a young couple that was uh, living together, and they wanted to get married. They decided they wanted to do the right thing. They were both professing Christians. He met with them and, uh, and said, uh, you know, I'd be happy to marry you, but you've got to stop living together before I'll marry you because I'll only marry Christians. And they said, well, we are Christians. We've, we've trusted in Christ and believed the gospel. He said, no, you're not Christians. He tells the story, because if you were Christians, you wouldn't be living together. Well, that's, that's just tragic. Now, again, I'm just relating an anecdote that he tells. I don't know if these people are Christians or not. But what I can tell you on the authority of God's Word is that the fact that they were living together had no bearing on whether they were believers. None. Guess what? Newsflash, Christians sometimes sin. Christians sometimes fornicate. Christians sometimes commit adultery. It doesn't mean they're not Christians. It means they're sinners, and they need to stop it, and, they, and they're going to pay the consequence for that. And there's tragic consequences for sin in the life of a believer. I have DVDs that I've sold for years on the awfulness of sin, and I, I think the grace-based gospel that the Bible teaches actually has the right solution, surprise, that the Bible would have the right solution when it comes to sin in the life of a believer. But a Calvinistic approach is that if you're living in those types of blatant sins, you can't possibly be a Christian. It's tragic. Uh, so when I see someone living in sin or I have the occasion to be, interact with them or maybe doing counseling or something, you know, if, obviously I want to hear their testimony. So, Tell me how you came to know the Lord. And of course, if they say, oh, well, I've always been a Christian or I was baptized or I was raised in church or they give any of those pat answers that indicate, well, they might not really understand the gospel. They may never believe the gospel. At that moment, then I, I think it's fair to go down the road of, well, maybe the reason they're living such a sinful lifestyle is because they were never saved. And I'm going to talk, turn it into an evangelistic moment. But if they give a profession that clearly indicates they understand the gospel and they believe the gospel, I'm not going to question that. It's not my place to question their heart. What I'm going to assume is that I've got an issue of a, a sinning believer, a sanctification issue. And I'm going to shift into the biblical teaching about reckoning yourselves dead to sin, walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh, walking by faith, not by sight, walking in the new man, not the old man, recognizing who you are in Christ and living like a child of the King and to deal with sanctification's issue. But as this article describes tragically, as far as I know, the person that inspired the article is still shipwrecked in the faith, although I believe they're Christians, because I've known them since they were a kid, and I know they placed their faith in Christ. Uh, but as far as I know, they're still living, you know, out of fellowship, because when they were at a, a tragic moment, again and again, the best the church had to offer them was, oh, you must not be saved. You need to get saved again, and really mean business this time. Even that phrase, think about that, the implications of that phrase. You really need to mean business. That implies that it's a bilateral contract. You didn't keep your end of the contract, so you weren't saved. This time, when you sign your name to the dotted line, you better keep your commitment. It's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, real quick. Yeah, sorry, I filibustered. Go ahead. I wanted to know, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? I know, like the Ninevites, 
they it seemed like that was sort of a little bit works-ish, you know, in the Old Testament. Yeah, no, it was never by works. From Adam forward, it's never by works. The method of salvation is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament until the new heavens and the new earth. Faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited righteousness. He became justified, declared righteous, by his faith. Um, the Old Testament doesn't deal a lot with individual justification. The Old Testament is predominantly about national Israel, but it's there, and it's consistent that it's salvation by grace through faith all the way through. The explicit content of faith obviously changed as time went on and God revealed more, uh, but it was always faith in God to provide a lamb and God to be the deliverer and God to save you. You couldn't trust, you couldn't get saved by your good works. So always the same. Good question. All right. Well, thank you guys. We'll wrap up for tonight and uh, look forward to seeing you either Sunday or next uh, Wednesday.